we're looking at page 77 uh, in our notes, right, Pansy? Yeah. yeah, 77, which is chapter 8. And let me see if I can bring up this um, screen here. And we will get started on that. Okay. So we're looking at chapter 8. Um, a life characterized by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is the last chapter in that chapter, verses five through eight, I mean, chapters five through eight, where we're looking at the results of our justification. Since we have been justified by faith, Paul says in Romans 5.1, here's consequences that flow from our union with Christ. Now we're in Christ, we used to be in Adam, and everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. We're now in Christ, and here are the consequences. And one of them, of course, is our sanctification, our spiritual growth. And an important aspect of that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I say here, the key word in this section is spirit. Uh, it only occurs five times in chapters one through seven and eight times in chapters 9 through 16. Are you on? Denise, can you mute yourself? Not me. I'm sorry. Denise McNamara says you're... I'm sorry. Okay, maybe you muted yourself. Let's go back to share the screen here. Okay. All right. So, um, five times the word spirit's used in chapters one through seven, eight times in nine through 16, but 21 times in chapter eight. That's quite a large number compared to the other chapters, which is more than any other single chapter in the whole New Testament. All but two of these occurrences uh, refer to the Holy Spirit. However, Romans 8 is not Romans 8 is not about the Spirit per se, but it's concerned with what the Spirit does. It's those blessings and privileges conferred on believers by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that constitutes the theme of this chapter. If one were to sum up the blessings in a single word, that word would be assurance. And I have um, in the past looked at this uh, kind of arrangement that Moo has, and I've highlighted the fact that <clears throat> the fact that we have been justified by faith, we're in united, we're in Christ rather than Adam, we can have assurance. Assurance uh, because we're in Christ, we can have assurance that we will experience future glory. This is chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. Assurance that we will be in heaven. Assurance of our salvation. And that's a tremendous blessing. And remember, this is, uh, this is the, one of the cardinal key differences between evangelical Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church. And this came out especially during the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church was very disturbed, very upset that the Protestant reformers were teaching 
people that they could be assured of their salvation. They could be assured they're going to heaven in this life. Because the Roman Catholic Church says no one can know that. Not even the Pope can know that. You can't know it because you could commit a mortal sin and die and go to hell. So you can't really know that. You have to be constantly reaffirming your justification. You've got to take the sacraments and so forth. And so this is the huge, huge difference between evangelical Christianity and the Roman Catholic Church. So we start here in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. You might call it a life of victory. Chapter 8 begins with, therefore, now, an emphatic combination that marks what follows as an important summary of what has gone before. Thus, we'll notice that chapter 8 will pick up various themes from chapters 6 through 7 in order to reiterate the wonderful message of 5, 12 through 21, that Christ has secured eternal life for all who have trusted him. The now, therefore there is now no condemnation. The now of chapter 8 um, refers to the new era of salvation history that has been inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection. So we have a life of victory, a victory over sin. So we're reiterating <clears throat> what we talked about in chapter six. It's not complete and final victory, but we're no longer under the dominion of sin. We're not slaves to sin. We're able not to sin. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful truth. Our victory over sin is stated in two ways. First, there is not for us now, there is for us now no condemnation. And condemnation is the opposite of justification. If you're justified, you're not condemned. God has said, no, you're not condemned. So no condemnation means that uh, God has acquitted believers of guilt. And we've, he's lifted the judicial sentence which under which we formerly live, which all unsaved people are under. They're under the sentence of death and condemnation. Verse 2, there's no condemnation because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is a way of saying, in summary, that the principle of the Spirit, the fact that we're and dwelt by the Spirit, we have the Spirit. He gives us life, and He set us free from the principle that we were under, operating sin and death. So second, we've been set free from the law of sin and death because indicates that this verse is the ground or basis of the no condemnation in Christ. A liberation has taken place through the Holy Spirit, and this liberation is the basis on which the person in Christ is forever saved from condemnation, both that which liberates and that from which the believer is liberated are denoted by the word law. In this case, it means, as we talked about principle, like the law of gravity. So Paul is emphasizing the work of the Spirit in our salvation. We're born again, regenerated. He's the one who draws us to Christ and gives us this resurrection life. And thus we're set free from condemnation, the law, the principle of sin and death. For what the law... Now we're talking about the law, Mosaic law. 
what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Now that's what chapter seven has been all about, remember. Uh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. So I say the liberating work of the Holy Spirit only takes place as verse two has indicated through Christ Jesus. Verse three now spells out this point by demonstrating that the spirit can liberate the believer from sin and death only because in Christ and his cross, God has already condemned sin. Believers are no longer condemned because Christ, in Christ, sin has been condemned. The Mosaic law was powerless to deal with sin because of man's sinful nature. That was again, chapter seven. There's nothing, Paul says, nothing sinful about the law. The law is good and holy and righteous, but it couldn't really do anything because man is born a sinner and just saying, don't do that, doesn't work. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't transform a person. So what the law could not do, God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul does not say in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of the flesh. Christ was truly human, but Paul uses likeness to guard against any identification of Christ with sin. Christ was sent as a sin offering in order to condemn sin in the flesh. So God's uh, condemnation of sin consists of his executing uh, his judgment on his son at the cross, punishing him in his atoning death for our sins. And so uh, as a substitute, Christ was made sin for us, suffered the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon sin, upon that sin, um, since power is broken. So remember these verses, God made him who had no sin, so he was sinless, to be sin for us. He didn't become a sinner. Uh, he was still sinless, but God imputed there's that word imputed, counted our sins to him, punished him for our sins, and imputed his righteousness to us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed before unpunished. In Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, curses everyone is on a, on a pole. So Christ became a curse. He became, he was condemned for us in order that we might be saved. Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. <clears throat> the purpose in order that, for which God has condemned sin in the flesh, verse 3, is now stated. This purpose is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met or fulfilled in us. The term for righteous requirement means the just or right requirement, the just requirement that the law demands. But what is the just requirement of the law and how is it accomplished? As Paul has made clear, works are doing 
is the basic, the law's basic demand, like in 2.13. For it's not those who hear the law who are declared righteous, but it is those who obey the law. The law demands perfect obedience, righteousness. 2.25, observe the law. You have to observe the law. It, the law demands obedience, doing. 2.26, keep the law's requirements. 3.20 and 28, works of the law. So the law demands obedience, works, you have to do it. This is what Paul means by the just requirement of the law, the summary of what the law demands of God's people. So Paul says that the righteous requirement of the law, what the law required, might be fully met in us, might be fulfilled in us. Some translations translate that fully met. It's the word might be fulfilled in us. What is the nature of this fulfillment? How is the righteous requirement of the law fully met in us? This is not something we do, but something that is done in and for us. The imperfect obedience of Christians cannot fulfill the law. We talked about that over and over again. That's the defect, not with the law, but with how the law operates. We can't obey the law perfectly. We can't obey the law sufficiently. But Christ kept the law perfectly. Remember, that's what we call his act of obedience. He lived a perfect life, kept the law perfectly. He died on the cross. God poured out his wrath on him. That's the passive obedience. He satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. He made what we are. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The law's righteous requirement is fulfilled or fully met in believers, not through their own acts of obedience, but by their being in Christ. Since Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, we are viewed as perfectly fulfilling the law. This is what Paul, what Paul uh, meant in 321 when he said, faith establishes. The law. We kind of talked about that there then, that faith does not do away with the law. It actually establishes the law. And how does it do that? Because only faith in Christ fulfills the law because Christ perfectly fulfilled it and we're in him. The phrase modifying us at the end of, of verse four, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit is descriptive of all believers. Notice the comma after us in the NIV. Make it a little tricky here. So the thought of the verse ends with the us, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Now we're going to have a description of who us is. That is, the phrase is a non-restrictive clause rather than a restrictive one. What does that mean? It's a non-restrictive, not restrictive. Restrictive clause limit or identify nouns and cannot be removed from a sentence without changing its essential meaning. A restrictive clause modifies the noun that precedes it in an essential way. A non-restrictive clause, on the other hand, describes a noun in a non-essential way. 
Now, what I'm going to say here is this clause that I'm talking about is non-restrictive. It's not essential. It's not needed. We can stop with the us and say, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, period. But Paul goes on after the comma with a non-restrictive clause to just describe who the us is. Compare this example, if I can do it. Last night I met John Smith who works at Walmart. So that who works at Walmart is non-restrictive. It's not necessary to the sentence. I could just say, last night I met John Smith, period. But I've added a little descriptive that's not essential. It's non-essential, non-restrictive, who works at Walmart. But here's the sentence. Last night I met a man who works at Walmart. No comma there because this is identifying the man. I met a man who works at Walmart. That's restrictive. So the point here is this is non-restrictive. That comma is very important. It's not saying that the law is fully met in those who live, who live according to the Spirit. You see, that's the point. It's not saying the, the righteous requirement of the law is met only in the Christians who, 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 uh, who live according to the Spirit. That is, the righteous requirement of the law is only met in some Christians, just those Christians that's not the idea at all. The idea is the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in all Christians, and all Christians are those who don't live according to the flesh. Now, as we're going to see when we get later in chapter 4, that phrase, according to the flesh, is an unsaved condition, and I'll show you that in a moment. Unsaved condition in verse 5, is, a, is a, according to the flesh, is an unsaved condition. So the point being, I say that the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in all Christians, and all Christians can be described as those who live according to the flesh, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's come to that, these phrases here, because they are very important, what they mean. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, there's our phrase from verse 4, Christians don't live according to the flesh, have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So we're going to have to trace, watch this as we go through these verses, verses 4, as we just saw, through verse 9. There's a contrast here between the unbeliever and the believer. Now this can be missed. This can be misunderstood. I once heard a preacher <laughs> uh, preach a sermon, uh, and he missed this altogether. He, he, uh, and he made a big mistake here. Uh, it's happened many times, actually, but it's pretty clear as you follow the argument here that these phrases, according to the flesh, mindset of the flesh, mind governed by the flesh, in the realm of the flesh, describe an unbeliever. These other phrases, in accordance with the Spirit, mindset of the Spirit, mind governed by the Spirit, and realm of the Spirit, describe a believer. The contrast is not between two kinds of believers, a super spiritual believer and an unspiritual, but between an unbeliever and a believer. So keep that in mind. So I say by looking ahead to the end of this section, verses 8 and 9, and working backwards, we can see that the contrast in verse 5 and back in verse 4, according to the flesh, between those who live according to the flesh and those who live in accordance with the Spirit is a contrast 
between non-Christians and Christian, between the non-Christian and Christian. Verse 8 says that those who are in the realm of the flesh, literally in the flesh, cannot please God. Verse 9 says, if anyone is indwelt by the Spirit of God, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, that one is not in the realm of the flesh, literally not in the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. Thus all Christians are in the Spirit, while all unbelievers are in the flesh. My point is to show that according to the flesh in verses 4 and 5, is the same as the mind governed by the flesh in verses 6 and 7, which is the same as in the realm of the flesh in verses 8 and 9. Those who live according to the flesh in verse 4 are those who have the mindset of the flesh in verse 5, and the mindset of the flesh is equated to the spiritual death in verse 6. And in verse 7, we're told that the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. These people who are spiritually dead, these people who are spiritually dead, hostile to God and not able to submit to God's law are described in verse 8 as being in the realm of the flesh and such cannot please God. Verse 9, we're told these people are in the realm of the flesh. Who are in the realm of the flesh are not believers. To become a Christian means to be transferred from the realm dominated by the flesh the realm dominated by the spirit. Therefore, verses five through nine, throughout verses five through nine, Paul is contrasting two groups, the unconverted, the unbeliever, and the converted, the believer. Paul's main purpose in verses five through nine is to highlight the fundamental differences between the flesh, sinful nature, and the spirit to show why those who who live, think, are after the spirit can have eternal life. Now remember this term flesh, F-L-E-S-A, flesh, We talked about this. This is not the physical flesh. This is what we call the ethical use of the word flesh or sarks. It's a way to describe that which is sinful within us. It's not describing the physical body, but our sinful nature. It's difficult to know exactly, you know, whether how you should translate this. The NIV, the previous NIV, translated all these as sinful nature. I actually prefer that, but They've gone back to a more literal translation here of sarks, the word here uh, for flesh. But we're talking about uh, not the physical flesh, but, you know, we say my old flesh just won't, we mean our sinful desires, our sinful nature is, I think, a good translation. So we can say in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, that is the sinful nature, have their minds on what the flesh or the sinful nature desires. So we're contrasting the sinful nature, uh, the sinful nature of people, and that's all they have. Unsaved people only have just a sinful desires, sinful uh, disposition. He says in verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Those whose mind is governed by the flesh experience death. Death in its broadest sense. In similar fashion, life and peace describe the state of freedom from the laws of sin and death that begins for the believer in this life, although in less than its final and definitive form. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. See, this is the unsaved condition. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, doesn't submit to God, can't do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Paul now explains why the minds of the flesh must lead to death because the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. The, that is the flesh, again, the sinful nature, and the mindsets that's characteristic of it reflects the principle and power of this godless world. And of course, they're always hostile to God and his purposes. The second part of verses 7 and 8 explain this hostility to God. The mindset governed by the flesh does not and cannot submit to God's law. Those in the realm of the flesh are those outside of Christ, and they cannot please God. Law in this verse here refers to God's demands generally, rather than any particular expression of that demand, like the Mosaic law, but just they can't submit to what God commands generally for all people. <clears throat> Paul's understanding of this, of the condition of unbelievers is most correctly summed up in the theological categories of total depravity and total inability. Now, I actually talked about this before, back when we were chapter three, but I'm just going to repeat myself here to remind us here that, that what, what does these passage shows, you know, the mind governed by the flesh can't please God. It's hostile to God. No, you know, this is what we call total depravity. And remember, total depravity does not mean that people are as evil as they possibly could be. Uh, it doesn't mean that all people commit every sin. They don't. Uh, it doesn't deny that there's a knowledge of good within each person. But what we mean is that every person apart from Christ, is under the dominion of sin. They're in the grasp of the power of sin. And that, that extends to all of their faculties. Nothing is not controlled by sin. That is, their mind is not neutral. It's not that their thinking is somehow not affected by sin, or their emotions are not, or their will. Every part of our being is affected by sins. Um, and so that's what Paul has, you know, clearly affirmed by uh, saying that all non-Christians have a mindset, a total life direction that's innately hostile to God here in verse 7. So all people, uh, um, all of us are by nature derived from Adam. We're Adam's, in Adam, we're born in Adam. We, are, we have an incurable bent towards sin and uh, our own selfish good rather than the good of others or the good of God. We're looking out for ourselves first of all. And people express this depravity in various ways, uh, variations of sin. Uh, we are, we're all attracted to in our unsaved condition to various aspects of sin, various pleasures, maybe riches, maybe money, maybe station in life, maybe power, <clears throat> maybe sexual pleasure. Um, they're all symptoms of the same sickness. Uh, it's a kind of an idolatry of self-gratification. We're, we're, we're all idolaters. And because of this depravity comes total inability. Uh, not only do we not have any spiritual good within ourselves, 
but we lack the moral ability to do anything that will please God. Uh, we can't come to him with our own strength. As Paul says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. That's a sad condition, total depravity, total inability. So the Christian, by the grace of God, has overcome that uh, power of sin and the dominion of sin. Now we can do things which are pleasing to God. So there's a life of victory over sin and over death. Paul says in verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, you Christians, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So believers are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. That is, they are no longer dominated, controlled by the flesh, but under the compelling influence of the Holy Spirit. Remember Paul said in chapter 6, one is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. He's just making this distinction. Unsaved, saved. There's just two conditions here in the world. And all this is because we're indwelt by the Spirit that we have this ability to please God. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. I see here Paul now speaks of Christ being in the Roman Christians, whereas in verse 9, it was the Spirit of God who is said to be dwelling in believers. So it's verse 9, it's the Spirit of God. Uh, verse 9, here it's the Spirit of Christ. Uh, obviously, we shouldn't mean, uh, we shouldn't understand this, as I say, to mean that Christ and the Spirit are equated or interchangeable but that Christ and the Spirit are so closely related in communicating to believers the benefits of salvation that call can move from one to the other almost consciously. Unconsciously, I'm sorry. In fact, you know, we won't take time to go on, but if in the Gospel of John, it talks about the Father in us and the Spirit in us. Now, we think of the main, the main, the main person of the Godhead who actuates our salvation is the Holy Spirit, but all persons of the Godhead are involved, as we see here. That which is secured for the believer by the indwelling Christ is spelled out in the apotheosis of the conditional sentence. Remember, you have the, talked about that protesis, if you love God, there's the if clause, the protesis, the conclusion, then you will do this or that. Uh, so the apotheosis, the conclusion is your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Paul says the physical body is subject to death because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So the Paul's point here is that we as believers, although we're bound to a mortal body, a body that's subject to death, nevertheless, we have the Spirit residing within. And so we will, unless we, the rapture comes, we will experience mortality. The body will die. But the power of this new spiritual life that we have because of salvation through Christ conveys life in the sense of deliverance from condemnation now 
that we enjoy now and a future resurrection life that will transform the, transform the body itself. We'll have a glorified body. And Paul says all this takes place because of righteousness. Righteousness, again, here refers to that imputed righteousness that we've been talking about. God made Christ to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Um, so that um, grace might reign through righteousness. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Paul now concludes his description of the life given in and by the spirit with a statement of the spirit's instrumentality in securing bodily resurrection. Two thoughts are brought out here. One, that the resurrection of believers is dependent upon the resurrection of Christ, certainly, and that it's the spirit who both raised Christ and who will raise us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation but it's not to the flesh, not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit, but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So verses 12 and 13 draw an inference. Therefore, from the foregoing verses, Paul now shows there are consequences of the believer's new relationship for his day-to-day -day life, namely that we are obligated to live according to the Spirit. The idea is not expressly stated, but in affirming that we, are, we have no obligation to the flesh to live according to it, it's clearly implied that we have an obligation to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. Paul specifically warns the readers that if they continue to live by the dictates of the flesh, they will certainly die. Death cannot mean physical death, since everyone, until the Lord comes, dies physically. Death here means eternal separation from God as the penalty for sin. And we, we shouldn't lessen this warning here. Paul, Paul is warning his readers, and he's warning all of us, that uh, we will face condemnation if we were to follow the dictates of our sinful nature. As I quote Murray here. Murray says, uh, John Murray, Believers once for, the believer's once-for-all death to the law of sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying, NIV says, put to death, sin and its members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. So this is the point that we, uh, we, we try to emphasize that, yes, we are saved, we're going to heaven, we have eternal life, but we're still obligated it's necessary and possible for us not to live a life dominated by sin, not to live a lifestyle of sin. And the Christian who lives a lifestyle of sin, there's serious doubts about that person. Now, it happens that many Christians uh, will fall into sin. They will backslide. They will go off into sin, maybe for a good period of time. And God will bring them back. It's, it's, it's hard to know sometimes. But there are people who make professions and unfortunately just fall away and never come back. There's serious doubts that they've ever really been saved because 
uh, of what we see in, in verses like this. Um, so truly regenerate believers, while we certainly will commit sins and fleshly acts, the Spirit will prevent us from a lifestyle of sin, from giving over completely to sin. And so we have eternal security, but that doesn't lessen or mitigate the seriousness of the warning that Paul gives us here. Um, so we have the fact of what God has done for us, but we have the imperative that what we are commanded to do. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies, verse chapter 6. We're getting a lot of themes back from chapter 6. So these two ideas cannot be severed. There's what God has done and what God, through the Spirit, will do through us. And the point of this connection is the Holy Spirit who is within and prevents us from a lifestyle of sin. And so the law, the Spirit that set us free from the law of sin and death takes up residence. It produces us a mindset, a direction that tends toward the doing of God's will and resists the ways of the sinful nature. I say, even though Christians are made responsible for this putting to death, this mortification of sins, they accomplish this only by the Spirit. So this is really one of the most important verses in the Bible on sanctification. If you, you Christians, that's us, by the Spirit, so we're not doing this in our own energy alone, just our own self-effort. Just No, we're doing it by the aid of the Spirit who lives within. If you, by the Spirit, do mortify, there's the English, there's the King James word, mortification, put to death. If you put to death, so that's what we have to do. We have to put sin to death. We have to try to kill it through the help of the Spirit. So I say, even though Christians are made responsible for this putting to death, this mortification, they accomplish it only by the Spirit. Holiness in our lives can be accomplished, cannot be accomplished by our own unaided effort, which is the era of moralism or legalism, Pharisaism. Neither can we become holy by the Spirit apart from our participation. As some who insist that the key to holy living is some sort of total surrender or letting go and let God. That's the background I came out of, what's called Keswick theology. <clears throat> and I, I, I regret it that I had that because it was very destructive to my thinking about sanctification, but that was a common thing that was taught when I came along, let go and let God. You don't do anything. God just does it all. No, Paul says, if you, by the Spirit, Put, we have to put, if you by the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body. So there's participation. Our active participation is required for our holiness, for our growth in holiness, sanctification. So our holiness is attained by constantly living out the life that's placed within us by the Spirit who takes up residence within us. So we have this finally, finally, sort of finely tuned balance that we can't tip one way or another. There's human activity, there's the work of God. Human activity in the process of sanctification 
is clearly ne uh, necessary. But that activity is never apart or distinct from the activity of God's Spirit. So sometimes you hear the words monergism and synergism. And that's, you know, uh, uh, Greek words, uh, monergism, synergism. So monergism means one force. There's one power, mono, one, gener one generation, one generating force. Synergism means there's, there's two. And uh, so we talk about justification as monergism. There's only one power working in justification, that's God. God reaches down and saves us. It's not our wills not involved. No, he, he does it. But in sanctification, it's more synergistic. We have a part to play. Some people don't like that word. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul used that term. If you're familiar with famous R.C. late R.C. Sproul, he, he, he used that. Some don't. They, like, they just talk about participation. We have to have our participation, uh, like John Murray, up at the top of the up, up at the, we had that quote we had believers once and for all death to sin doesn't free us from the necessary mortifying he talked about our participation but the point is uh, there is this balance between our activity and god's activity so i say how do we more specifically put to death or mortify the misdeeds of the body well we can look at some scriptures <clears throat> one we must say no that is abstain from sin 1 Peter uh, 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. So abstain from sinful desires. Two, we must separate ourselves from sinful practices. Ephesians 5.11 and 12. Have nothing to do with the fruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Three, we must practice, live a life, a self-disciplined life. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, 24 through 27. Paul's talking about his own self, his own life here, and how he disciplines his own life as a Christian. He uses the metaphor, the illustration of the race, uh, the Olympic race, for instance. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, only one gets the prize? run in a way as to get the prize. So he's talking about <clears throat> us, if we uh, are Christians and we mortify the deeds of the body and we follow God, we trust him and we pursue holiness, then we will ultimately gain the prize of eternal life. Now, the truth is we know we'll gain it if we are true Christians, <laughs> but it's hard to tell it. it it's hard. We, we don't really know about true Christians, unless we see their lives. Anybody can come forward in church and say, I'm trusting Christ. Wonderful. We, we love that. But it's, it's all, it's more wonderful to see a person who we've known for 20, 30 years, who've lived a, a pretty consistent Christian life. And when they die, we have great confidence that we'll see them in heaven. So Paul says, run in a way that you get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. 
They do it for a crown that will not last, but we do it for a crown that will last forever. He changes the metaphor, the illustration to boxing that was done in the Olympic games. Uh, Therefore I do not run like someone aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. So that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified by the prize. I won't go into all the details here, but he's just saying, I discipline myself. I discipline myself. Four, we must not cater to the sinful nature, Romans 13, 14. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Remember, Job made a covenant with his eyes. Five, we must constantly build up the spiritual life, First Peter, 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, the knowledge self-control and the self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, the godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. I say here, you might want to read uh, The Enemy Within, straight talk about the power and defeat of sin by Chris Lungard. I, would, I was going to say we've got it in the We've got it in the resource center, but <laughs> can't get to the resource center, but Amazon has it if, you, if you're interested in reading something about this. There's a classic work <clears throat> written by John Owen, but it's, uh, you know, 400 years old. It's, uh, it's written, it's, it's been brought up to date in a more modern, but it's, it's a very, uh, it's the most compelling work on this, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, but it's, it's very detailed, very theological. It's, it's a lot to wade through, but it's sort of the classic work on this subject of mortifying sin. All right, let's come to our last section here tonight, a life of sonship, 14 through 17a. Two ideas run through this paragraph, sonship and heirship. The former points to our present relationship. We're sons of God. The latter is a promise of our future glory. We're heirs. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children, or sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit are the children of the sons of God. In verses 14 through 16, we have the thought of assurance of salvation. Three such assurances are given. Three assurances. First, maybe defined, maybe something like spirituality, that is, the, li- the living of a life under the control of the Spirit of God. Verse 14 explains and justifies, because, here, see the word because, the conclusion Paul has reached in verse 13. Before, for those, because those who are led by the Spirit of God. That putting to death the misdeeds of the body through the power of the Spirit will bring eschatological life. Verse 13 should not be misunderstood to mean that this life can be gained by works because Paul says in verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Now, to be led by the Spirit is not the privileged possession of some believers. It says here, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are not the real spiritual children of God. The Holy, Holy Spirit, it's the children of God. They're the sons of Everybody who's a son of God is led by the Spirit in the sense Paul is talking about here. That's not how the phrase led by the Spirit is commonly used in our uh, Christian world. So to be led by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit is not the 
privileged position of some believers. The definition of a child of God is one who is led by the Spirit. All Christians are led by the Spirit. Thus, to be led by the Spirit does not mean to be guided in decision-making. That's how it's commonly used. Spirit led me to do this. This leading by the Spirit speaks of the Spirit's empowerment in our lives to bring about the mortification of sin. See, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So this leading by the Spirit is you're leading to put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's by the presence of the Spirit within us alone that the bondage to sin in which we are by nature held is broken. That we are emancipated from sin and no longer debtors to live according to the sinful nature. This new principle of life reveals itself in our consciousness as a power claiming regulative influence over our actions, leading us into holiness. Thus, the leading of the Holy Spirit is simply a synonym for our progressive sanctification when viewed in terms of the Spirit's role. We are led by the Spirit as we more and more advance toward the conformity to the image of His Son, which God has placed before us as our great goal, as we'll see in verse 29. And so, <clears throat> this is that chart I've tried to show a number of times, trying to show progressive sanctification is the mitigation of the old nature, the growth of the new nature, new dispositions. We're putting to death the old. We're uh, giving birth to the new, and this is by the power of the Holy Spirit who is within. The Spirit you receive, verse 15, does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The second assurance of our sonship toward God is the believer's confidence in approaching him in prayer. In our conversion, the spirit we've received does not make us slaves so that we live in the fear again, but the spirit we received brought about our adoption to sonship that leads us to cry, Abba, Father. The spirit that believers have received does not bring about again that fear and anxiety, that anxiety and fear of judgment they suffered in their pre-Christian state. Paul said in Galatians 4, Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods you know, your pagan idolatry. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now, because according to what Paul has said previously in chapter 3, chapter 7, you know, we, about the law functioning to bring awareness of sin and the corresponding penalty of condemnation. Paul is probably thinking here about a reference to the law. And what he's saying here to the Galatians is, back when you were pagans, you were following whatever rules and regulations that your pagan God said you must do. You must sacrifice your child. 
You must bring these sacrifices. You must do this. You lived in fear. And the Galatians are in danger of going back under the law, of putting themselves back under the Mosaic law. And in that sense, it's sort of like what they were before. <clears throat> They're living in fear, trying to keep the law. You observe special days, months, and seasons, probably a reference to the law. But now you're a son, so you don't live in fear. The word translated adoption is sonship. You don't live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. The word translated adoption and sonship, we authasia, is often translated simply just adoption. Uh, you could just translate it, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. It denotes a Greco-Roman legal institution whereby one could adopt a child and confer on that child all the legal rights and privileges that would ordinarily accrue to a natural child. So the, the Roman uh, concept, the Greek concept of adoption is different from ours. We normally adopt a child because we want a child. Some people adopt one because they want another child. They don't have a child. They want, they want a child. This is more, uh, the Roman custom was not for the purpose of having a child, but the purpose really of transferring uh, rights and properties. And so uh, if you wanted your estate to, uh, if you wanted, it's, it's almost like a will. If you wanted to have your estate go to another person, you could adopt that person. So um, Augustine was actually adopted by, you know, Julius Caesar. Um, and um, this was a common practice. It, it didn't have anything to do with you're poor and I'm going to adopt you. It, it just meant that <clears throat> there's a fellow mentioned in Acts chapter 18, Gallio, who's the proconsul of Corinth when Paul goes to Corinth. He's actually from a very famous family, illustrious family, but his uncle is childless. So his uncle adopts him and he takes his uncle's name so he can inherit his uncle's fortune. It's just a matter of, you know, that kind of thing. So it speaks of rights and privileges. See, we are adopted. We have these rights and privileges. We're no longer fearful. We're in the family. Uh, this adoption is presented as having a threefold aspect, a past, present, and future. Uh, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So there's a sense in which pre uh, adoption was in the past. It's, it was, we, we were predestined to be sons of God. Present, Romans 8.15, as we see, Galatians 4.5, God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption, the adoption to sonship. There's a future. Romans 8, 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So this is like a lot of things in salvation. There's a past, there's a present, and a future. This spirit of sonship causes us to cry out in prayer, Abba, Father. These are the Aramaic, Abba, and Greek words, Father, used by our Lord in Mark 14, 36, and his disciples in prayer, and they were combined by some of them in the form of address. <clears throat> it appears that our Lord Jesus and the disciples' main language was something called Aramaic, very similar to Hebrew, and they would speak of the Father, Abba, and in Greek, 
pater or father. And so this apparently became a common Christian way to say both of those, Abba, Father. We're crying out to the Father <clears throat> because we're sons. 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The third assurance of our sonship is the witness of the Spirit. The Spirit is not only the instrument in making us God's children, regeneration, born again. He also makes us aware that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit's witness with our spirit is the reason that we spontaneously cry out, Abba, Father. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This, this verse provides a transition to connect Paul's description of the sonship believers enjoy at the present time with his moving portrait of the culmination and full benefits of that sonship awaiting the believer in the future, as we'll see in verses 18 through 30. Just as a child is adopted into a family through, tr uh, though truly a part of that family, does not usually receive all the benefits of that adoption until a later time. So the believer, though a member of God's family, must wait for his inheritance, that is heaven, and all that awaits us. Paul uses the idea of inheritance to emphasize the necessity, the necessarily incomplete nature of those privileges inherent in our sonship. We're sons, but we don't have it all yet. There's a future for us. Verse 17a points up this privilege that grows out of our adoption. Since we are God's children, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We're sons of God by virtue of belonging to the Son of God, and we're heirs of God only by virtue of our union with the one who is the heir of all God's promises, of course, Jesus Christ. Well, it's 8.03, so let's stop there.